Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. I'm going to give you a secret, uh, one of my little secrets of uh, good decision-making, something that I've, I've explained to a lot of people over the years, and, and I think this is good. Like, not everything, not all the advice I give is, is good, but, but this, I think, is good, and it has to do with how to make wise decisions. The secret to making wise decisions is putting things off. I'm not joking. The secret to making wise decisions is putting things off. When I don't know what to do, or I'm not confident of being able to do it, I put things off. I wait for the right time. And I do this hoping that that one of two things will happen. That if I put them off, if I wait, then hopefully uh, things will fall into place and the right decision will become clear. Or secondly, if I put things off and wait long enough, whatever the problem is will fix itself. And either way, I feel more confidence than if I had acted before I knew what the wise thing to do is. On the plus side of this, it really does help you avoid making mistakes. Sometimes uh, the first thing that comes to mind, even if you're certain that this is the right thing to do, isn't the right thing to do, isn't the wise thing to do. And it helps to have time to reflect, to uh, gather counsel, to, to get advice. Sometimes when we act too quickly, there are unintended consequences. And you find yourself having to make more decisions, go deeper to solve the problems you created by not taking enough time, by not waiting. There's a downside, though, and the downside is it's slow. If you do this, if you put things off, if you wait until you know what the right thing to do is before you do it, it takes a long time. Um, This is a good way to develop patience because you will find yourself waiting a lot, waiting and waiting. Now, that sounds very spiritual, Right? We should wait upon the Lord. And certainly in Christianity, there is a lot of waiting. And the story of God's people in Scripture involves a lot of waiting on God to fulfill his promises. But there's a big difference. Because unlike us, God never puts things off. If I don't know what to do, I, I delay I wait. I, I, I push things further onto the calendar. God never pushes anything further on the calendar. He never delays for the sake of delay. God is never waiting for things to fall into place. But God's the one who puts things into place. God is never waiting for problems to just take care of themselves. Because the problems God is concerned about cannot be solved unless God solves them. Unlike me, and unlike you, God knows what to do. He knows exactly what to do. And there is no doubt in his mind over whether or not he can do it. So he's never waiting to build confidence that his plan can actually be achieved. But if that's true, 
if we do a lot of waiting in the plan of God, and yet none of it is for the reasons that we typically wait in our own lives, none of God's waiting is like our waiting. The motives are, are so different, then, then why wait? Like, why do we have to wait if God knows what to do, if he has the power to do it? If he could do it with perfect wisdom, why not just do it? And that's a question we often ask ourselves when we are confronted by the need to wait. And what does it mean in this context when Paul says in Romans 5, 6, that Christ died at the right time? At the right time. When I do something at the right time, it's because I, I waited until it was the right time. I waited until the circumstances were right. But if God doesn't do that, if God never has to wait till the stars align, what does it mean that Christ died at the right time? Why was it the right time for Christ to die that day at Golgotha? And what time was that on our clocks? What time was that for us? And what does the timing of the cross prove? The cross came at the right time in the history of redemption. In the history of redemption. Paul talks about this idea of the timing in various places in the New Testament. In Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, he specifically puts it in the context of the work of redemption. He says the work of redemption has come in what he describes as the fullness of time. So when he says fullness, think completeness. Kind of the, the time has come to fruition. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So the work of Christ, his birth, his incarnation, everything that he did, it happened at the right time in the sense that it happened when the fullness of time had come. So again, the question is, okay, well, what made those days especially full? And when faced with that question, commentators will typically look at historical circumstances. So this is the moment where they turn to things like, um, well, the fullness of time had come in the sense that the Roman Empire exercised this sort of unifying power, hegemony, over the Mediterranean world. So the time was right in the sense that the world had been united under Rome. Or if you think in more subtle categories than that, you might say it's not so much the political power of Rome that unified the world. It's more like the cultural power of Hellenism. Right? As a result of the conquests of Alexander the Great, uh, this idea of Hellenism, a Greek culture, had become the norm in the Mediterranean world. People thought in these categories, and it was a sort of pre-evangelism, right? These Greek ideas had spread throughout the ancient world, and, and, and Greek philosophy was like paganism that, that was really close to the truth, and it just needed somebody to come along and plug Christ into it, and then it would be firing on all cylinders. So the time was right. The moment was propitious. The circumstances were correct. The stars had aligned so that the gospel might spread. That's the kind of thinking. Or sometimes you'll hear it said this way. Um, 
these were, were the times that were right because of the language, not just the, the Hellenistic culture, but Koine Greek, common Greek had spread throughout that world. So it was possible for people who spoke many different languages suddenly to have a lingua franca, which is, is not Greek, but Latin, but you get the idea. A common language, a, a tongue that we can all communicate in, what Latin was to be in the Middle Ages, Greek was at this time. And so it made it possible for these groups to communicate and possible for the gospel to spread like wildfire. And you think, okay, right, but what was Pentecost all about if God needed to wait until people were all speaking Koine Greek before he released the gospel so that it could really go viral? All of those things, as good as they are, they're the kind of arguments I think you could make for any moment in history, for any point in time. I I grew up in uh, the dispensational wing of of the church where there's a lot of uh, reading of prophecy in order to discern the exact moment of the end times and that sort of thing. And in that way of thinking, you're always taking uh, the, the latest developments of the moment and explaining how these ancient prophecies could only have come true at this moment. And I remember being told that because of uh, cable television and the ability to communicate throughout the world, only now would it be possible for the two witnesses spoken of in the book of Revelation to be observed by the whole world as they lie dead in the street. Couldn't be done before now. These were the, this was the fullness of time, so to speak. And then I found a, a book of end times prophecy published in the 1860s. And a fascinating book for a lot of reasons. But one of the passages explained, only now could these prophecies be realized because of the laying of the transatlantic cable. Because it's now possible for the telegraph to send information from Europe to America and back and forth. Only now is the time right. So this sort of argument, I think, is an argument you can make wherever you happen to be situated in history. It seems as if the times are always right. There's, there's never any reason to wait. But the fullness that Paul is speaking of is not a fullness of outward circumstance or historical circumstance. It, it, it's something else. But Paul doesn't mention any of those factors. For him, the timing is connected to Uh, like cosmic history, to the history of redemption, to the history of salvation. In Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, he writes, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So God didn't wait because he was waiting for the circumstances to be right from creation to the cross. He has controlled the circumstances from the beginning. From the beginning, even before the foundation of the world, he's had a plan for the fullness of of time. But he also had a plan that filled the time in between. There was never a moment between creation and the cross that wasn't planned, that wasn't deliberate, never a moment that didn't fit into the plan of God. And that's a plan that continues. 
As Paul says, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, a work Christ begins at the cross, but we actually look forward to still that that unity, the unity in Christ of heaven and earth, the new creation still to come. John Murray wrote that the fullness of the time is consummating time. The crowning dispensation, the consummation of the ages, the time upon which all other times converge and in which God's purpose of the ages reaches its fulfillment. The death of Christ belongs to the consummating era of this world's history. Appropriateness for us, exhibition of God's wisdom and love, efficacy of accomplishment are all bound up with this fact. The time had reached its fullness because God had finished with the, the, the prefiguring of the cross that was worked out in Old Testament history. The sacrifices that I alluded to earlier, the, the types and the shadows, all of it had been enacted already. The, the work that he intended to do covenantally with his people over time and leading up to the cross had been fulfilled. All of that was important. All of it mattered. All of it was part of the plan. Essential. And in the time of the cross, it reaches its fullness, its fulfillment, its consummation. The cross... The timing of the cross is interesting, not just in terms of God's plan, but it's also interesting in terms of where we are when the cross comes, where we are in history. The cross came when we were weak, ungodly, and sinful. The timing of the cross for us is telling in in Paul's account. If you look at the way he describes it, he says, the cross came when we were still weak, when we were ungodly, In verse 8, when we were still sinners, if you flip over to Ephesians 2, he speaks in similar terms. He adds, it happens when we were dead in trespasses and sin. That's Ephesians 2.1. And in Ephesians 2.3, it happened when we were children of wrath. All of those descriptions of us, the way that we are contemplated in the moment of the cross, We're weak, we're ungodly, we're sinners in that moment. That's important because it's important for us to know that Jesus didn't wait until we were ready. A lot of times that's the way we talk about it, is Jesus has come to save those who are ready and we need to be ready. If Jesus had only saved those who were ready for salvation, then no one would have been saved, according to Paul, because no one was ready He's going out of his way and piling on these descriptors to demonstrate we weren't ready. We were weak, not strong. We were ungodly, not godly. We were sinners, not righteous. We were dead in sin, not alive. We were children of wrath, not of grace, when the cross came. Not ready at all. Jesus did not save those who were deserving In other words, it's easy to see why it might seem otherwise, because Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is an inconceivable sacrifice. And when somebody does something like that, 
When you pour out your life in that way, when you give it up in that way, um, you don't do it lightly. Like Nobody goes to the cross without a reason. And so it's natural to assume that if you're willing to die for someone, that person must be deserving. They must merit that sacrifice. Otherwise, you would never make it. If Christ died for us, the thinking goes, then we must be worth it. Because that's quite a sacrifice to make. But again, Paul is going out of his way to undermine that logic, right? to show that no matter how great the sacrifice is, what you cannot take away from that great sacrifice is that those for whom it was made must have been worthy and deserving. Because why else would he have done it? Jesus died for those who did not deserve it, is Paul's point. And to illustrate this in verse 7, he draws this comparison with human behavior. He says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. He's talking about the logic of self-sacrifice there. When you look at, at the way humans behave, it's not unheard of that someone would sacrifice his life for someone else. It's not normal. We wouldn't ordinarily do that, but occasionally it does happen. Even a righteous person, you'd be reluctant to sacrifice your life for because we like our lives. We like living, you know, and you're thinking, well, he's, he's super righteous, you know, whereas I'm pretty imperfect and I'm constantly doing the wrong thing. He's actually pretty perfect and, and is always doing the right thing. What a great example. And uh, when, when the bullet comes, for him, I'm going to step in front of it because, frankly, he's just more deserving of life than I am. That's not usually the way we think. If any, nothing else, you know, in that moment, you're thinking, he is so righteous, he would totally want to sacrifice himself for me. That's just the way he is. I do not want to take that from him. Right? It's a crowning achievement. We just don't ordinarily sacrifice ourselves. But Paul makes an allowance. Maybe you would. Maybe for a good person. Like maybe for a person who is exceptionally deserving, you might actually do that thing, even though it's generally inconceivable. It could actually happen. But still, what Jesus has done, that's not what it is. That's not the way to understand it. Jesus has not given himself because of our goodness. He's not looked down and said, okay, they need an atonement and frankly, if, if anyone deserves it, they do. That's not the reason why he's gone to the cross. The logic is completely different. Because he died for us while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners. Still weak, ungodly, he says. Christ died for us in our ungodliness, in our rebellion he sacrificed himself for us. The point here is that Christ makes his sacrifice for us while we are weak and sinful. Therefore, it isn't based on our righteousness. It cannot be based on human righteousness. Jesus did not sacrifice himself for you because you are a deserving and worthy person. And he did not sacrifice himself because he foresaw down the corridors of time that one day you would be. That you may be ungodly now, but one day you would turn that around. One day you would choose well. He didn't, in other words, foresee 
a future faith and then die for you while you were technically ungodly, but he actually knew you were one of the good ones. And we can't comfort ourselves with such thoughts because it isn't comfort, it's self-deception. Instead of seeing the sacrifice made at the cross and thinking, well, I must be worth it, it actually helps to stop thinking about what the cross says about us and to start thinking about what the cross says about God. Because Paul says the cross reveals something about God, that the cross proves God's love for us and that that love is unconditional. If the sacrifice isn't based on our worthiness, then what is it based on? It's based on God's love, God's love for us. That's the only motive for sacrifice on behalf of the undeserving. And that's also something we can relate to because it's not exactly true that the only way that you could conceivably sacrifice yourself is that if you judged this other person to be super good and moral and upright, people sacrifice themselves for the undeserving a lot because they love them. If your children are in danger, would you sacrifice yourself for their benefits? Yes. When faced with that choice, would you start weighing up their merits? I know he's my son, but is he a great son? Could I really call him an ideal son? Could he be better? There was that time when I told him not to do this and he did it. Maybe I wouldn't sacrifice myself for him. If he had obeyed, perhaps. But no, he wasn't perfect. No, that's not the way you think at all. Like none of that calculus, none of that logic enters your head. They're in danger. You don't think about it. You don't weigh the options. You sacrifice yourself out of love. That's the only logic by which the cross makes sense. The only logic by which the sacrifice of Christ makes sense is the logic of love. In acting this way, Paul says, God shows his love for us. That's what the cross is evidence of. From start to finish, the whole plan of salvation is a Trinitarian display of divine love. From start to finish, not only the moment of the cross, but from the beginning to the end, every moment of God's plan of salvation is a Trinitarian display of divine love. And if you search the scriptures, you will see this. Not only the stuff that that seems obviously loving about salvation, even the stuff people often point to to demonstrate the unlovingness of God's plan of salvation is grounded, is offered as a proof of love. Divine election and predestination, for example. When people argue over election and predestination, the reason they object to it is that they fear that it takes away from the idea that God loves. It diminishes the love of God. That's the objection. Like That's the, the sort of heart objection that leads to it. And yet Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, in love he predestined us. Isn't that interesting? 
where we look at election and predestination and we think, Paul, it would have been better not to even talk about stuff like this because it makes God seem so unloving. Paul puts it out there as evidence, as proof of the love of God. The atonement, that's what we see here in Romans 5, 8. The atonement is couched in love. There are a lot of people who look at Christ's sacrifice on the cross and they see something ugly there. And a God who would do such a thing, who would inflict such suffering, seems incompatible with our idea of a God of love. And then Paul says God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What we point to and say, it makes me wonder if God is loving. Paul points to and says, here's proof that he's loving. Regeneration is the same way. The idea that the spirit makes dead hearts alive in Christ. Ephesians 2, Paul writes, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We were dead in sin. He made us alive. There's no starker metaphor than than death to life. And that's the work of the Spirit in our lives, which is done, Paul says, out of a motivation of great love. It's out of great love that God does this. Even sanctification, we saw last week in Romans 5, 5, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us from start to finish. The whole plan of salvation, all of the work of salvation in its minutia, in its details, in its fine print is a Trinitarian display of God's love. We see the Father at work ordaining planning, decreeing. We see the Son at work, sacrificing, obeying, mediating. We see the Spirit at work, quickening, illuminating, and inspiring. Trinitarianly speaking, the whole package, all of it, everything God is doing from beginning to end, evidence of love. Evidence of love. The implication being, had God not been willing to do it all, None of it would have been done. And the only motive for such a work is love. It could never be merit. It could never be worthiness. It could only ever be love. Now, as I said, and I, I want to you know, admit this up front, that people who are critical of these doctrines uh, are often critical for uh, what seem to them good reasons that what they're trying to do is, is guard and protect the idea of God's love. I just want to point out that it's not the way Paul goes about this. In order to guard and protect the love of God, Paul teaches the things that, that we are prone to think jeopardize that doctrine. No, we can't both be right. Either we understand these things or Paul does. I'll let you guess who I think it is. When you make salvation conditional, when you hedge these bets, you're making God's love conditional too. Once you make this plan conditional, you make the love that that drives the plan conditional as well. 
So it's a great irony that a lot of people think it's more loving to say that God doesn't do this work for us. He just helps us do the work. God doesn't choose us until we first choose him. The cross doesn't atone for sin. It just makes it possible for our sins to be atoned for if we want that. The Spirit doesn't regenerate us. He strengthens those who choose to bring themselves back to life. We sanctify ourselves, admittedly, with a little help from above, through our obedience. These are all things that we tell ourselves thinking that they make God more loving. Paul says they really don't. They do just the opposite because they make the, the work of salvation less his, more ours. When you water down God's work like this, you're taking away the very thing Scripture says, prove God's love. Instead of God saying, you couldn't do this, so I've done it for you, because I love you, we're making him say, I love you because you did this. We're turning things upside down. If you compromise the sovereignty of God, you compromise the love of God as well. I think that's important to hear. But, but there's something else that's important to hear as well. Like, let's not just pat ourselves on the back. Because if you leave out the love of God, you gravely mis- misrepresent the sovereignty as well. Those things have to go together. When you leave out the love, you reduce scripture to sovereignty alone, as many people do. If you ask them, like, what's the heart of Reformed theology? What's it all about? If I just needed, like, like one theme that unifies it all, what would that be? A lot of people would answer and say, God's sovereignty. God's raw power. God's ability to do whatever God wants to do. And as important as that principle is to understand, God does what he does out of love. God puts that power to work out of love. And if you strip away the purpose that motivates that power, you are hollowing out the gospel just as surely as the person who goes from the other direction and takes out the sovereignty, thinking he's magnifying the love. You get it? Unity and diversity together. Both of those things are important. You cannot separate God's love from God's sovereignty and vice versa. For us, the inseparable thing is a little bit different. The thing we have a hard time separating is the idea of love and worthiness. Where we see love, we, we, we intuit worthiness. It's interesting if, if you ask yourself, like, what's the question we pose young people when they fall in love? People ask me this when Lori and I got engaged. Uh, you know, they always want to know why. Like, like why, why do you love this person? And they would ask Lori that question as well. And, and, and in that case, I think it was more out of concern. You know, like, why, Lori? Why? Are you sure? But for me, it was more like, well, what is it? What is it about her that you love? And the funny thing is, we ask this question as if it's answerable, right? That you expect, like, a list of merits. And so you start coming up with, with these ideas. You know, you say, well, you know, I really love her. Her eyes are larger than average. Uh, I really love her because, you know, she, she puts up with, my habits. You know, I really love her because X, Y, or Z, whatever it is, as if that's the way it works. Like love is a response to worthiness. 
that you fall in love because you see a bunch of attributes, a bunch of characteristics that merit love. When in reality, it's the other way around. You fall in love and then you look for reasons. It's the reason why when your friends fall in love with people that you just don't understand, it's like they come up with all these reasons that make no sense. Think, why do you love him? Because he's so unreliable. And you're like, no, that's not a good reason. It's, it's just not the way it works. But in our minds, it does. And so we take that idea, and when we bring it to the love of God, that connection remains. We see that God loves, and we look for the worthiness that that love is directed at, for the merit that that love is connected to, the good qualities, the good attributes within us. The problem is we know deep down our sinfulness. We know deep down our unworthiness. So there's this irony, like we are thinking on the surface in terms of love and worthiness, and we're looking for the righteousness in our lives that merits the love of God. And yet deep down beneath the surface, we know we don't possess it. We're convinced we're surrounded by righteous people, but we're pretending. If they could see what we're really like, they would know we don't deserve the love of God the way, you know, they do. And so we live our lives in this strange uh, territory. Paul comes in and points to the cross and he says, you don't need to live with those ambiguities. What you need to understand is that the cross is an objective proof of God's love. You may struggle to believe in God's love because when you look at yourself, you can't see any reason for it. And that's great. You shouldn't see any reason for it when you look at yourself. If you look at your reason, or if you look at yourself and you find good reason for God to love you, there's a need for deeper self-examination. Right? You should go deeper. But God doesn't love us because of our merit. He loves us because he loves us. And he demonstrates that love objectively, not subjectively, not, not in our hearts, but, but in reality, in the cross, in a historical event. But because the message of that cross has been so blunted and so qualified and so hedged in, it is not uncommon at all for people who have faith in Christ, whose hope is in the cross, still inwardly to struggle with a sense of unworthiness, to struggle to believe that God loves us. How do I know that I deserve the cross? How do I know that God loves me? That's not a question that can be answered because it's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. It's based on the wrong premise that that love could only be motivated by worthiness. And so we continue to seek it. We have to give up that search. We don't deserve the cross. But the question that we should ask ourselves is not whether or not we deserve it. We should ask ourselves, how do I know that God loves the undeserving? How do I know that God loves sinners? How do I know that God loves the ungodly? How do I know that God loves those who are dead in trespasses? How do I know that God loves children of wrath? That's the question that Paul answers here. 
And he answers it by saying, you know this from the cross. Because Christ died for the ungodly. He died for sinners. He died for you. The timing of the cross is the answer to those things. We need never doubt his love. Because it's not anchored to anything inside of us, any merit deserving inside of us. Let that go. He has shown his love. He doesn't have to prove it again and again. He has shown it objectively once and for all in the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.